0: Irish men and Irish women. In the name of God and of the dead generations from which she receives her old tradition of nationhood, Ireland, through us, summons her children to the flag and strikes for her freedom. Having in organized and trained God her manhood
1: and through her the secret right generations from which
0: she the Irish from men and the Irish women, and the in the name the of God and of the dead Irish generations, from which she, she receives her old, her her tradition, her old tradition, tradition of nationhood, I through us summoned her children to her and strife from freedom, and her exiled children in America and by gallant allies but July, in is first of the first
2: in her own strength, she strikes in the confidence, confidence, confidence of, of with authority. And uh, as I say now, this would be uh, uh, Pierce's actual cell uh, here in the jail, and uh, it's amazing because the, ge- the cell is pretty much the same as it was then. Um, it would have been whitewashed, of course. I mean, I know looking around at it today, it's, it's fairly horrific looking. But it was actually painted white uh, when it was in use. Um, I was once told on here that, uh, as far as we know, they actually uh, removed uh, the beds, the British authorities removed the beds from the cells before they put the leaders into it. And someone who visited uh, Pearce at the time remarked that it was, it was real shocking to see the President of the Irish Republic uh, as he was styled, basically sleeping on the ground there beside us. Uh, perhaps using his great coat as a pillow. So, you know, it, it's, uh, you know and they basically just lay on the floor in the uniforms in which, they, uh, in which they were captured, you know. He would have spent really, I suppose, maybe writing and what the priest was, praying, as they all did. Um, again, it's something that, you know, that people would know, say, from Kevin Barry years later, that they spent their last night often for hours in prayer along with the priest. These were intensely, it seems unusual to us today, but they were intensely religious men, and this is, probably, you know, this is probably, as far as we know, what he would have been doing uh, during his last few hours really alive here.
3: We're sitting now in my office at the top of the Hermitage, Pierce's St. Endes, a uh, beautiful 18th-century house set in 50 acres of attractively landscaped uh, uh, park. Um, and I suppose you could say Pierce was attracted here by these very features. The fact that it was a noble house Um, with the influence of nature immediately available as an educational inspiration for the boys. Uh, When he was living in Collinswood, where he first set up that...
4: The first time I saw the name Pierce was at the bottom of the proclamation. I wondered, who is this man? Growing up in Newry, there was no talk of him at school. And when I asked people what they thought of him, I was led to believe he was either a hero or someone you shouldn't speak too loudly about. In an attempt to find out more about Peirce, I went to St. Andes, and I met there the curator of the Pierce Museum, Pierce, Pat Cook. Um,
3: it's very difficult to find one systematic statement of what Pierce's inverted commas, philosophy of education was. I think, basically, it was, it was worked up over a period of time. The key element, I, to my mind, was his visit to Belgium in 1904, where he saw uh, Flemish being... And French being taught bilingually in the schools of Flanders and that gave him the sense he was an activist by nature he was a practical man he says once I see a way to do something I will then go and do it so rather than being led by an idea in that instance he was he was led if you like by the practical example of what was possible and Pierce once said famously to desire is to hope to hope is to believe and to believe is to accomplish so Having seen it work there, he came back absolutely determined, wrote a whole series of enthusiastic essays on, on the Belgian school system and says, we can do it here. We can set up a bilingual Irish and English school. And I, if nobody else is willing to do it, I'm going to do it. And that's exactly what he did, incredibly enough, at the early and tender age of 28. I mean, imagine setting up, um, you know, such a t- undertaking such an enormously uh, challenging venture at the age of 28. It, was, it, was, it showed courage of great, very great kind of tremendous conviction. Uh, but there were personal instincts of his own that were very large in his educational philosophy. I mean, he was fundamentally a gentle man, uh, which probably explains his repugnance to corporal punishment. I don't think it was a philosophical position he had on that one so much as a personal, you know, emotional principle, if you like, that it was just simply wrong to beat people and to try and achieve educational ends by, by that means. Uh, so that was actually, I would say, a very important feature of his, of his educational approach.
0: All right? There's bloodthirsty. Four. What do you think of the idea of blood sacrifice? Now, in case you don't know what that is, Pierce's notion, and Connolly shared it later on, Pierce's notion of one man sacrificing himself for the for the people, as Christ did and as he thought Cú did. Cú and Christ figures, you know, they play a, a large role, right? So the blood sacrifice, right? Yeah, it's a bit of a
5: difficult question to answer in many ways because you have to wonder that, like, if the rising didn't happen, well, like how close w- would we have been still to England, especially coming up to World War Two? Haven't
4: heard have what Pierce's own school was like. I went to Sing Street CBS innocent. to find out how they teach the history of Pierce.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I read a quote that he um, said he wanted to that the blood would warm the heart of the earth or something like that, and it doesn't seem as if he was bloodthirsty he didn't to want to chop people's head off and gut them or, you know, he didn't use any foul language or anything like that so I do think I agree with what he, Stephen said Was he had a romantic view of it and he didn't really learn what it was like until he actually did it because as far as I know he didn't, wasn't in any battles or anything else before that so that's probably what he, he probably had a, a, a kind of romantic notion of it.
0: what do you think of the term blood sacrifice
5: um it's a bit of a dangerous. It's a bit of a dangerous sounding term because I mean, it's like saying that you're, you know you will put yourself out in the firing line to be shot, or that other people should. Like it's a bit hypocritical to believe and say. A blood well, first
3: of all, I would say you can't separate Pierce, like F- like Pierce from the nationalist. But then the question begins to get more complicated. Are you talking about Pierce, the cultural nationalist, or Pierce, the political uh, nationalist? I think there's a there's a there's a, an order of development that comes and it's, it seems reasonably clear and consistent to me, up to about 1910 or so, I think you can say that Pierce was more or less exclusively a cultural nationalist. That's not to say that he was not capable of responding to and appreciating a certain kind of, shall we say, physical force rhetoric, which was part of the larger zeitgeist of Europe at the time. We must understand this, that all that younger generation believed in values of chivalry and uh, dolce et decorum est pro patria mori, how sweet and noble it is to die for the, la- the fatherland. The whole generation that went into the First World War across Europe were no different from Pierce in their understanding of this need to stand up and die for principles. Uh, and he, of course, when he moved, when he started his school, he began to speak of these, you know, of these noble principles, shall we call them. Co Holland was his exemplar of this. But, you know, you do find him for all that. Sitting on a on a home rule platform with John Redmond in 1912, you do find him writing in one of the school magazines around 1910. You know that uh, you know you, you, that the, the, the Irish person can take must take Ireland for granted. You need not you know ignore foreign names, pray Irish ones. He still had this confidence that if we could if we could succeed in the cultural project, we would we would simultaneously succeed in the political one, and that was a kind of a gradualist. Uh, kind of vision at that time. So, what happened to Pierce? Well, this is the complicated question.
6: I encountered Pierce at school in the late 1950s when he was described in my school book as probably the most noble figure in Irish history. And I was told at the same time that it was predicted that he would sometime be canonized as a saint. And having a curious disposition. 28 years
4: ago, Ruth Dudley Edwards published a biography of Pierce. The book is now out of print.
6: The reaction to the biography was absolutely extraordinary. Um, Every budding author thinks that everybody wants to buy her book, but um, I'm a realist as well. What stunned me was that it suddenly became a main talking point that I was interviewed in RTE News, and then when I went over to Ireland to do a few programmes and a bit of publicity... I discovered that I had suddenly become, become in some circles um, a ferocious enemy of all that was good and great in the Irish nation. Um, I kept being described as brave. I learned at that stage that I was something called a revisionist. I didn't know what a revisionist was. I, was. I was no academic. I was just somebody who had written a book. And apparently I found the reason I'd written this book was in order to diminish the... Northern Irish nationalists, that that was the whole reason for writing the book, whereas I'd written a biography of a man who interested me. He was in many ways a very fine um, and brave man. Unfortunately, he was also messianic, and that messianism took him to believe that he had the right, with a tiny number of other people, to sacrifice themselves and many other people, I believe unnecessarily, Um, but with absolutely no mandate whatsoever. An awful lot of people died in the slums in Dublin because Patrick Pearce and his colleagues went out to make a gesture. Those people from the slums didn't ask to be sacrificed to the ideas of people they would have thought were crackpots.
5: My name's Tommy McKearney. I'm uh, living in Monaghan, former member of the Provisional IRA. Do you remember the first time you heard the name Pearce? It's a long, long time ago. I imagine it was from my parents or possibly even my grandparents. In many ways I was reared in a republican family um, with long-term connections with Irish republicanism and uh, militant Irish republicanism of the Fenian type. Um, Both of my grandfathers had been members of the IRA in the 1920s through the Black and Tan War. So. as a child, I remember them speaking of Pierce. I remember my mother and father speaking of Pierce. But at the same time, I think we have to be clear that it wasn't oppressively so, or it wasn't monotonously so. The great interests through my childhood were, as, as they would be for any other child, school and playing and football and that type of thing. But, among others, there were other figures from the past and the Republican uh, canon who were mentioned often. And where I was reared and where I went to secondary school in Dungannon, uh, probably Tom Clark would have loomed even larger, if only for the reason that Tom Clark always considered himself to be a Dungannon man and we'd considered him to be a Dungannon man. He spent most of his uh, life uh, as a young adult and a youngster in Dungannon town. He was... Uh, Reardon in dungannon from his five years of age until he left at about 25 so in all senses he was no one of in that area but pierce was the orator pierce if you like in my opinion was the man that blew the bugle for revolution Uh, he 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 could warm the crowd he could write the prose that, that that energized the people i think you always keep in mind was that the famous, famous speech that Patrick Pierce made over the gravesite of O'Donovan Rossi, uh, it has become a icon uh, of Republican history and Irish history, for that matter. But he took counsel from Tom Clarke before he made that speech. He asked Clarke, how hot will I make it? And it was Clarke who gave the definitive word, make it as hot as hell. But that doesn't take away, of course, from Pierce's stature within Irish Republicanism. Nor does it diminish his his character in our eyes at all. As a, as a younger man and as a youngster, of course, I, I tended to lionize him among others. Among others,
3: this is part of the complexity of Pierce. I don't know the extent to which Pierce had a highly sophisticated political philosophy. I think he was a man with very strong emotional drives, deep emotional drives within himself. Um, and that he tends to catch a ride, if you like, on evolving political circumstances and fit himself into them. He once described himself as the most, you know, the most dangerous revolutionary of them all. Well, why was that? I think he probably felt that you know, he's the guy who, say, who, who espoused this emotional extremism, that he was willing to sacrifice himself for something that he believed in. And in a way, he wasn't carrying any sophisticated political baggage that went along with that. He didn't have any more sophisticated political analysis. He thought that the act, the gesture itself, was what defined the political reality. And in a sense, that way he was travelling light. You know, by comparison with the, likes, even with the likes of Arthur Griffith, who had spent his life working up, whether you agree or disagree with it, a quite complex political analysis of the condition of Ireland in the modern world. He wasn't a, he wasn't a normal politician, or political personality in that sense. So I think it's a kind of a misreading of history to be ascribing to Peirce very elaborate political positions. I don't think he had elaborate political positions. He believed that character was the driving force of history. He believed that character itself would define the political moment. And I suppose that's what we have to deal with more than anything else in 1916, that it was a revolution defined by a very powerful set of personalities.
7: My name is Noel Hughes, and we are outside of Liberty Hall here on a 1916 walking tour of the various buildings that took, uh, took place on the north side of Dublin. What I speak about, I never learned it from a book. I was amongst the survivors of that period of time, the people of that 1916, that fought 1916, and I got the stories from them, and that is the only way that I know about it. Now, Pierce, which I'm told was in the GPO, marching up and down with his revolver and his sword. Pierce would go and fire some shots, according to Elizabeth O'Farrell and to Brendan Condlew, told me that Pierce was a very brave man, He a very determined man, a man who could see nothing, only in his mind, the freedom of his country. At 25 past 12, the Lancers came galloping down out Street, and Connolly gave his order, hold fire, hold fire. And in holding fire,
3: Pierce then gave the orders, fire. It seems like a rather quaint phrase at this stage, and it's it's kind of like a label, a simplistic label that's um, stuck onto Pierce. I think the the unhistorical aspect of that label is that it fails once again to understand how incredibly typical Pierce's sensibility, in in accepting or endorsing that view of the world, is of his generation. You know, the the young poets of the First World War, Rupert Brooke and all of these, they all long, longed for you know the, the, the extinction and the gesture of rushing towards the trenches that's there very clearly in Rupert Brooke's poetry it's there in Wilfred Owen's poetry it's there interestingly enough in the writings for instance of Thomas Mann as well and people like this Death in Venice 1912 written there's a kind of a sense of a fond de siècle we're living in a tired world we need to make you know gestures of renewal we need to rid ourselves purify ourselves in, in a great war which is exactly what they got but not in a form that they wanted it I'm Dr. Pat Wallace. I'm the director
8: of the National Museum of Ireland, a position I've held for 17 years now, believe it or not. So in that time, we've, held, we've had a couple of 1916 exhibitions. We're in the permanent gallery here devoted to 1916 and the War of
4: Independence. Is it difficult to preserve the name of Pierce? Is it difficult to accurately represent him?
8: Uh, it isn't. It, sh- it should be very easy. I know that Scully and uh, the St. Uh, they do a very good job out there and uh, forever his name will be associated with that school. Uh, it is not, nor should it be. Patrick Pierce. Uh, people have tried to take from him, tried to run him down, tried to ridicule him in a way. He should be looked at as a man of his time, an extraordinary figure, uh, a-, a-, a kind of a symbolic almost poetical figure. Uh, he would have had no role to play. Uh, when you think of the roughness and the rough play that was necessary to win the War of Independence, which was won by the likes of Collins and uh, people on the ground, of, you know, operators like Collins and Mulcahy and uh, those sort of fellows. I mean, Piers couldn't have fitted into their world at all. They, they were pragmatic um, guerrilla leaders and operators. Uh, and even after that, when the setting up of the free state, I don't know would Piers have any role to play in the kind of fixer, appeasement, appeaser nature that was there, setting up the or, or, or organs of state. And even in the de Valera era, de Valera was a great leader as regards flexibility, statesmanship, give and take. But de Valera also believed in the revival of the Gaelic language and he belongs with that era as well. So it's very unfair to to select certain writings by any of these leaders and ridicule them in the light of our time. In many ways, if you're talking about the legacy of Pierce and those other characters like uh, Collins and uh, de Valera, their legacy really is a legacy uh, concerned with the Gaelic past, concerned with inspiring people for the future.
0: What do you make of the claim that certain Republican figures seem to make that they are the true heirs of Pierce.
1: boy, um, what is that supposed to mean though? I mean, an heir to what? I mean, you know, it's the Irish people who are the heir to the country, and not one person. And I feel sure he would have said that. that he was doing it for the Irish people, not for um, you know just for himself, he was doing it for for democracy. If he wanted the Republic, he would have wanted a democracy, and he wouldn't have wanted what James Connolly would have wanted a communist state. So I wouldn't really think that he can't really say something like that. I mean, he didn't find, found Sinn Féin either, so you know, Arthur Griffith founded it, and it's not exactly what he wanted either. So he can't really say that. Well, if they want to be the heirs, they want to be the heirs. They're not like his children or anything, so you can't really.
0: The point of breaking
1: to you is this: that Pierce led a revolution
0: to create an all-Ireland republic embracing Catholic, Protestant, and Dissenter. Sinn Féin, for example, today claimed that they were involved in a struggle for liberation to embrace the same ideals, to create an Irish Republic, a socialist one, albeit, which would take in Catholic, Protestant and dissenter. Now, in that way, can you see a continuity between Pierce and, let's call them, the uh, armed element of republicanism?
5: Irish Republicanism set out to establish a democratic republic on this island when, it, when we were ruled by an absolute monarch and ruled via absolute monarchism and ruled by a very privileged elite. It has been our unfortunate history that we have only been able to establish a democratic republic through conflict with those who denied us the right to establish a democratic republic on on this island now those are the negatives those that has been the downside of our commitment to a democratic republic on this island it is very unfortunate and it has been a very tragic consequence of it but i don't believe that you can lay that at the feet of irish republicanism uh, because we adhered to a democratic republican philosophy and have brought it about in many parts, that we can be blamed for the, the tragedies that, that, that we inevitably faced in our attempt, and somewhat successful attempt, to, to achieve the Democratic Republic in two centuries.
7: We are now in of where the house here in Plunkett Shop, of where they could go no further. It was decided in this building, by Pierce that a surrender would be made and after a while a white flag came out of that window there a white flag came out of that window up there and the British stopped firing and then Elizabeth O'Farrell came out with a white flag and a surrender note from Pierce she went up to the top of Moore Street And going up to the top of Moor Street, she met with General Brigadier Lowe. And General Brigadier Lowe's son. She told him with heartfelt words that the commanding chief of the Irish forces wishes to treat and meet with the general of the occupied forces. He told her to go back and tell the commanding officer, whoever he would be, to come out. He didn't know who it was. So, after a while, Pierce came out alongside of her. And he marched to the top here of Moor State, where Pierce handed his revolver and a sword over. Pierce must have been a broken-hearted man, knowing that he had to surrender.
4: I was beginning to get a sense of just how complex the legacy of Pierce is. Back in the National Museum, Pat Wallace was all too aware of these difficulties.
8: The problem is that in the 1980s, people in the 26 counties were so upset at what was happening in the name of nationalism and in the name of republicanism, north of the border, that they they shied away from their own history, from the glories of our own history. Right, and understandably, but they shouldn't have done that. They, as it were, uh, uh, stepped aside from their own history and they left it be hijacked and and used by a small minority of people for their ends. If that small minority is using it for their own ends, and if we have cut ourselves loose from that legacy, then that's a a, a terrible thing, and and it's it's, it's our own fault then if our history is bastardized and, and cannibalized and selectively used. It shouldn't have been. We should have stood by our history, and we can we can cure and change all this by uh, making history ever more relevant and popular at school in the school curriculum. I know it is in the primary school; should be even more so, though. And we shouldn't be dumbing it down or sexing it up. We should tell the truth about the past, and we should we should uh, not be afraid for children to have proper heroes like Pierce, like Connolly, uh, like Griffith, uh, like any like Dev, like Collins. These should all be heroes because. Because we, we created a vacuum, uh, b- taking it away from the curriculum, reducing its role, its relevance, its reference to our lives, we've only ourselves to blame for this. And certain ministers for education in the 80s are responsible for this. But they, had a, they did it with cabinet approval and with popular acclaim. And we've gone away. From, we've, therefore, they were unpopular. That's why Pierce is unpopular. Pierce should be very popular. What, what did he ever do wrong? All he ever did was give his own life... Uh, for a cause, and he never realised that by giving that life that that, uh, it would lead to the creation of a free state.
6: No, I think it's absolutely understandable. They're very nervous, and why not? Because they're riding a few horses. If you celebrate 1916, if you're celebrating what was in essence a tiny cabal starting a revolution without any kind of mandate at all, How do you say that's okay, but um, what's been happening in Northern Ireland isn't? How can you say Pierce was right, but the unelected cabal that um, ran the IRA from 1970-odd onwards were um, not justified? Uh, It's a point that Conor Cruiser O'Brien made really in the 60s. We have told young people that what Pierce and his colleagues did was right, and now we tell them that what they are doing is wrong. It set a very difficult precedent, and the government, recognising this, have dodged the issue continuously. They now see that he's somebody who not only is the inspiration of the provisional IRA, whom until quite recently everybody was pretending were good guys, latterly, but also of the real IRA and the continuity IRA and any IRA you're having yourself.
5: I believe that certainly over perhaps since his death we have seen two or three different... Uh, interpretations of pierce his outlook his life and his contribution to irish history pierce because while he wasn't uh, opposed in any sense to equality and economic equality and fair treatment for the general population and the poor i think it's fair to say at the same time that he was not of the classical socialist mode He certainly wouldn't have been an orthodox Marxist as James Connolly was. And because of that and because it was possible to interpret Peirce as purely an idealist and nothing other than an idealist, it was possible and he was used and his memory exploited by Ireland and the establishment and the, the governing parties of Ireland for perhaps 40 or 50 years after his death certainly from the time of the the treaty until the outbreak of the northern troubles pierce was deemed to be the safe the safe the acceptable face of militant irish republicanism an idealist who didn't concentrate according to their interpretation on economic equality who didn't point an accusing finger at the millions who were going into emigration, the deplorable wages, the unemployment, the, the the very inadequate social services that we had on this island. He was a much safer person to examine and to hold up as an example. I think we owe it to him to take notice of
3: the kind of person he was and to continuously reassess the kind of person he was, rather than continuously evoking the same old stereotypical cliché, the Gaelic Catholic blood sacrifice summed up in this one personality. That's the kind of a cardboard two-dimensional figure. I mean, Pierce's Catholicism is a very interesting phenomenon in itself. You can question, you can unpick all three of those things in terms of the 1916 rising. But in the case of Pierce, for instance, it's surely significant that the first ever revisionist Attack on Pierce was written by a Jesuit. A Jesuit was highly un, uneasy about Pierce's conflation of, of Catholic theology with, uh, with pagan heroism in the form of Co Cullen, for instance. Where's that coming from? How orthodoxly Catholic is that? So you see, you can, you can, you can, we owe it to Pierce to go back and actually find out what kind of a person he was, leaving aside the baggage of trying to make him conform to a particular kind of ideological argument that we want to conduct in the present day. Two years ago in the columns of the Irish Times, there was a, a very remarkably, one of the longest running debates in those very interesting letters columns uh, was on the subject of Pierce himself. But if you look at that debate, it had nothing to do with Pierce. It had everything to do with the, this, this kind of this stereotypical profile of Peirce, the poric Pierce.
4: Would it be fair to say that a younger generation now in Ireland that's undergone significant changes in terms of society, they don't care about political freedom. All they care about, say, is an economic freedom, and that's what they crave. And they couldn't care less about 1916, couldn't care less about Peirce. Is that a fair point? It's a sad point. (laughs)
8: If it's true, I don't don't think it can be entirely true. And if it's true, it's not their fault. It's not the young generation's fault. It's our fault, the older generation, who have abdicated from their responsibilities by, by subtracting history from the various... Uh, educational processes, taking history, diminishing history as a leaving sort value subject, by taking, uh, by making sort of current affairs history, and by take by not studying various aspects of our past, by eschewing and avoiding all the glorious achievements of ancient Ireland, uh, by, by reducing the distinctiveness of Ireland in, the historic, in a historical sense and in the historical consciousness. No wonder young people then have no interest in Ireland or in, and that they become greedy, capitalistic, little, little uh, Celtic uh, tiger people. That, would be, that is bad and, and it will only
3: lead to the destruction of the whole country. And if he was hijacked by Northern Nationalists, he had certainly an awful lot of willing collaborators among Southern revisionists who were more than willing to hand him over. If you see what I mean, because, you know, those who were willing to argue, you know, for a very narrow, almost fanatical reading of Irish history through Peirce were supported in that reading by those who, uh, by those who were arguing effectively the opposite saying, yes, Peirce was that we agree with you and you take him and you run away with him. He's yours. And I think Peirce was too readily handed over to 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 the narrow ground, if you like, in a lot of instances. Uh, But he's still there to be argued and debated over. And I still think if you go back and you look at the man and pay any close attention to him, his sheer complexity stands up to analysis. There was an awful lot more to Pierce than just simply met the eye. And he was basically kind of very quickly fashioned up into this iconic Pierce very soon after the 1916 Rising. And I'm just going to give you one concluding symptom of how quickly and how effectively this iconic Pierce was created. And it's the phrase, Porrick Pierce. Porrick Pierce appeared for the first time uh, in the monumental collection of Pierce's works, which began to be written or be compiled just after The Rising, first volume appearing in 1917, edited by Monsignor Brown. And he refers to him there as Porrick Pierce. Now, if there was one thing Pierce was, the real Pierce, he was punctilious about the Irish language and the English language. He never signed an, a, a, a letter or a piece of writing in English, anything other than P. H. Pierce, punctilious, you see, P H, uh, P. H. Pierce, and all his letters and writing, Irish are signed, Paulic Mock Peerish. This mongrelism, Paulic Pierce, is an invention. It's a post-1916 invention, and it very rapidly becomes in, in, installed. Now, isn't it remarkable that people who putatively are supposed to be admiring Pierce? are at the same time taking this kind of liberty with his understanding of the role of language in Irish life. I think it's one of the great Irish, Irish in a way, uh, shall we say uh, ironies of nomenclature lament- in, in modern Irish history that Pierce is misnamed continuously and consistently in this way.
0: Okay. Six. Does the present situation In Ireland, oh, anything to Pierce.
6: He would have been the first person to be shot by his own colleagues because they would have found him naive beyond belief and difficult because too principled. People like that are always shot when the revolution happens. If not shot by the enemy, they get shot by their own. So I don't think he'd have been ran to affect anything.
2: He was uh, removed from that cell over there, and uh, it's on. If people who, who, who know Kilmainham Jiles, it's on the west wing. Now it's in uh, the first floor of the west wing. He would have been taken from there. Uh, I believe it was at dawn, maybe around four, or half four in the morning. This is what we're looking at. So you can imagine, like at that time, now I mean, it was fairly dark at, at that time in the morning, and brought along the hallway to uh, one of the staircases and down there and just straight out here to the yard and of course the yard in those days would have looked slightly different uh, to what it appears here today and um, there were small uh, sheds in here uh, of course it was the old hard labour yard the stonebreakers yard so it was slightly different in appearance but this is where he would have been brought up here to uh, where the cross is and just where we're standing and literally just tied onto it and um, of course they were all blindfolded they would have had their arms behind their backs and possibly maybe their legs tied as well and uh I mean, by general accounts now, Pierce faced his execution very bravely. People will go, "Oh, you know, this is just you know part of nationalist mythology." But apparently now the man uh, did go to his uh, execution uh, particularly bravely. Uh, again, it's you know it's hard to get words to describe it. Like when you're when you're standing and at this part of the yard, you do these tours every day of the week, you know. And uh, yet when you actually do come down here and stand and you see pretty much the same sight uh, that Pierce would have seen in his last few hours alive, it's. Uh, I mean, there's not words really to describe it, you know.
6: If those people who claim to be descended from him and are in the ascendant at the moment of his, the provisional IRA, uh, happened by some misfortune finally to succeed in undermining our democracy the way they are trying to do, now who knows what Pierce would be doing in 2016. Um, I think the Republic of Ireland is a very healthy democracy. I hope it can fight off the threat it's facing at the moment from subversives, terrorists and people who are essentially embarked on a fascist um, determination to take over, to take power by hook or by crook. I hope our democracy survives. If it does, it will be stronger and healthier. And I think in 2016, it will be capable of having a robust and sophisticated look at what happened a century previously.
5: There is a belief that the 50th anniversary in 1966 gave fresh impetus to the IRA of later years. I think that's frankly a mistake, that there were far more fundamental and serious reasons. The profoundly anti-democratic nature of Northern society was what regenerated the IRA in, 1917, in the 1970s, not the commemoration of 1966. But um, I wouldn't like to think that by 19, 2016... That the people of Ireland would be so uh, intimidated that they would refuse to commemorate the people of nineteen sixteen and acknowledge the tremendous contribution they've made uh, uh, Pierce included, and we go, I go back to the point that yes let's let's look again at Pierce, but let 's look at it in a perfectly serious, stringent and rigorous way. And let's look at what he did. Let's look at the positive aspects of the man. And if there are negative aspects there, we'll not hide them. But let's not do it with a political agenda.
3: No matter what you think about 1916, you have to engage with it. It is where this state, this sovereign nation comes from, one way or another. All that EEC prosperity is built on the back of national sovereignty. The wealth of Ireland today in some way is traceable through that. That's a positive result of 1916, if you like. And if you ignore it, it's almost psychotic. Ignoring your own history is psychotic. So we have to engage with it. I have to, though, say that the recent school texts, um, uh, secondary school texts especially that I've seen, are paying more attention to 1916. There has been a readjustment there, and that's only positive, I think. Pierce
5: is part of the militant, Fenian, Republican legacy on this island, which has at its best been fearless, militant, democratic and republican. And he fits into that tradition. He's part of it. He's a major part of it. And that will be his legacy, that he has uh, contributed to that very, very significant dynamic on this island with all that it has meant for this island Uh, and all that it has uh, provided the people of this island with, and all the good it has done in spite of the pain that we have endured while trying to bring it about. Uh, And that's where Pierce rests as one of the great pillars of that tradition.